Uh, this is a very problematic for me because I want to watch a particular screening of this movie at a particular theater in a particular format. And so, and it's got reserved seating. So, like, I've got to be on at 8 o'clock to get my tickets. And maybe you've had this experience uh, with a concert or a, a, a baseball game or something that you were interested in going in where you're supposed to get the tickets on Ticketmaster at a certain time. And it's the mass scramble, right? There are tens of thousands of people that are all hitting the website at the same time trying to get a good seat. And for most of us, that means a seat that we can afford, but also that gives you a decent view and you're balancing those things. But it's not like you can look at the seating chart and carefully pick the one you want. The second that switch flips, it is this furious pecking at the keyboard and clicking on things and pulling out credit cards and, oh, what do you mean the security code? I don't know what that is. And you're fumbling with things. It is a very stressful experience, if you have never done it, to race to get tickets for something. It is the closest that many of us will ever get to actual athletic competition. Okay? I mean, there is, there is pressure in that moment. And, you know, if you miss, if you type the wrong key or you push enter too early, you are done. It is over. And then there's the patience game. You can't hit the reload button or it'll send you back to the beginning. And it's just, it makes you nervous. It makes you anxious. It took me about 10 minutes to get the tickets that I wanted. They were not exactly what I wanted, but they were fine. And I was just, I was worn out. Like my day was 10 minutes in, you know, it's 8:10, And I, oh, oh gosh. You know, like the anxiety has welled up in me because I had to get these. But we get these pressure moments in life where we have to make a decision and we have to make it quickly. Where we have to process something fast and decide what we're going to do about it. And I talk about the tickets as a silly thing, but there are these moments where we feel the clock ticking. And there is the question of, am, what am I going to do with this information? What am I going to do in this moment? The last week of Jesus' life is filled with these pressure moments. The clock is literally ticking on his life. The people around him may not know it. Some of them are actively plotting it, but this is the last time they will see Jesus, the last time they will talk to Jesus. And so there's this tension in the air of how are we going to receive this man? How are we going to respond to him? What are we going to hear and what are we going to do? And that tension overflows into conflict in the last week of Jesus' life. If you've ever uh, had the taken the exercise of just reading the last week of Jesus' life, the, from the triumphal entry until his death in any of the Gospels, you will find that it is full of what we call controversy stories. They're stories in which Jesus is arguing and fighting with the people around him about a whole variety of issues. A lot of times they're trying to trap him, they're trying to trick him, but there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of fighting. And we see that tension... Um, even in the story of the triumphal entry, you're going to see these people who do not like Jesus, these religious leaders who are going to have a problem with Jesus. They don't wait for Monday morning. Palm Sunday is when the fighting begins. And it begins in our story today in uh, Luke chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. 
Go ahead and click me over, Brendan. Oh, uh, there we go. I got it. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This passage directly follows what I read um, at the beginning of worship, which was uh, this passage where the people are laying down their coats and praising God and all these things. And what we see here is Jesus expressing his concern for the people in two ways. One way is a more sympathetic way, almost a pity, and the other way is a more angry way that comes first. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and these leaders of the religious people of the day have come to Jesus and they're frustrated that he's receiving praise. They're frustrated that people are call, talking about God in the highest coming, that they're describing him as this messianic king, this king that was promised to the people of Israel. And so they, they say, stop it. Knock it off. Make these people stop. They're all praising you. They're all worshiping you. This is blasphemy, and you know it. Stop them. And Jesus does this very cute thing here. Uh, it's not quite in our idiom, but it's close, where he goes, you know, you guys are dumb as rocks. Because he says, if, if these people weren't worshiping, if you all had your way and they all shut up, literally the rocks under your feet would be smart enough and capable enough to realize that they should worship me. This is so obvious. God's work in the world is so clear right now to all of creation that it, it, you know, it doesn't matter. They, they shouldn't have to stop because they see what you cannot see. In all of your education, you have missed what God is working, doing and working through me. And so if they stopped, the rocks would cry out. In, in Matthew's version of this, Matthew digs in a little bit to the religious leaders and he mentions that it's, uh, it's children. It says that the children are singing praise to God. And the Pharisees go, oh, you should stop them. And Jesus is like, yeah, the, the kids understand what's going on. They clearly are more intelligent than you are because they see how God is working in this place. The second section of this, um, as he comes in and as he, 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 does, that he receives these praises, that he starts to come into a point where he can see over Jerusalem. Uh, the geography is such, Jerusalem is kind of on a hill, and there are kind of big valleys all around it. And so to go to Jerusalem, you kind of have to go down into the valley and then back up the valley to actually get into the city. And so as Jesus comes in, he, they could have seen, if you're in the temple, you could see Jesus and his donkey making its way down. And if you're Jesus, you can look over and see the city. And somewhat famously here, Jesus weeps over the city and what's coming. Uh, this is a very interesting passage for us. This is Jesus uh, weeping over the coming destruction of Jerusalem. We know from history that, you know, another 40 years from now, there's going to be a Roman siege that's going to come in and is going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to rip the walls to the ground. People are going to flee and go live in caves. It's going to be disastrous. 
And as the video showed us so well at communion, Jesus is saying, if you guys only would listen to me, if you would live life the way I'm telling you to live life, this would not happen. Now, this is a little troubling for us that Jesus is speaking condemnation on the city of Jerusalem. Some scholars are very worried about the ways that this has played out in sort of an anti-Semitic tone throughout the history of the church. But what Jesus is explaining here, I think, is very simply that if you live the way of peace that I'm teaching you, how not to cause trouble, how to live at peace with the people around you, then when Rome came in, you would not be such obnoxious pains in the rear end about how you're living. This is very helpful for us when we talk about politics and how we discourse them, uh, how we engage in political discourse, that Jesus goes, listen, if you followed my way, the government wouldn't want to kill you. Oh, okay, well, it suggests that there's a, the part of way of Jesus is living peaceably with people and not starting fights and not getting people so mad they want to burn your city to the ground. And so, um, so Jesus speaks this, this word of peace here where he says, I wish you would just listen because if you knew the work of God among you, you would not suffer what you're all about to suffer. And he feels this pity for them in what's going on. As I uh, read through the passage this week and thought about some of the things that Jesus said here, um, the thing that hit me was the pressure of these moments. Right? Like, Jesus, Jesus donkey trip is not going to take days or weeks or months. This is a thing that takes a couple of hours. And so when the people saw him, they had to make a gut decision. Is this legit or is this not legit? Am I going to grab palm branches and worship him as the coming king? Or am I going to sit with the Pharisees and fuss at him about his blasphemy? And they didn't have time to think it out. We couldn't have a Bible study. We couldn't create a committee to discuss the reasonability of Jesus so that we could then make an informed decision about him. No, it was boom. That was a moment. It was like sitting at the computer trying to get your Rolling Stones tickets. You do not have time to think about this. You have got to decide what is going on. What do I believe is happening in this particular moment? And we all get what I would like to call holy moments. We get moments like this in our life where we have to do that kind of decision making. And I call them holy moments because... Uh, first of all, because they're only moments. They're short windows. They're times where you will be faced with the opportunity to learn something about God's work in the world or ignore the work of God in the world. But you're not going to have forever to decide which it is. And they're holy because they're moments that are different. They're set aside. They're the moments that put those butterflies in your stomach and you go, oh boy, we're talking about that right now? And we have to think, how are we going to deal with them? How are we going to approach these holy moments in our life? Uh, let me give you a couple examples of the kind of thing I'm talking about, if this sounds obscure to you. Uh, you're at work, and something has come up where they're talking about some kind of spiritual or church-related issue. And they're talking about something probably controversial, because that's all anybody ever talks about. And they go, well, this church does that, and I heard that church did that, and I heard this guy on the news said this. And then someone looks at you and goes, oh, Janet, you're a Christian. What do you think about it? And it's a holy moment all of a sudden. You have been asked to speak a word for the Lord, but you don't have long. Break ends in six minutes, okay? So you've got to decide, what am I going to do in this spot? Maybe somebody comes to you and they're, they're raising money. 
my nephew is uh, involved in this ministry that helps homeless people and does this thing. Will you give money to it? And if you're like me, you're like, well, is this a good use of the money? Do I believe in the values of this organization? Blah, 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 blah. All this stuff's going on in your brain. And you've got to say in that moment, yes or no. How are you going to deal with that moment? Uh, maybe there's somebody who is a friend of yours who's not a Christian, but they're starting to explore spiritual things. And they come to you and they're honest about how hard their life is. And they go, but I've started studying the Bible. And, and then they spit out a series of eight things four of which sound great, two of which sound eh, and two of which are total heresy. And you're like, oh, what am I going to respond with? How am I going to deal with this? There's just all this stuff coming at me. How am I going to respond in a way that's loving but also, you know, lets them know that snake handling is probably not the best thing for them? Maybe just what, how am I going to process all that stuff? What am I uh, going to do with this? The hardest one yet, uh, somebody comes to you and they say, you know, I've really noticed that you do this thing that's really not great. And I just, I know you're, you're a good person. I just think that you're better than that. And you get real defensive and you get real hurt. And you have to ask yourself, what am I going to do in this moment? Am I going to listen or am I going to get defensive? We have all these little kinds of holy moments. These moments where our relationship with other people and our relationship with God suddenly get forced into just the vice of pressure. And the question is, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? Now here, um, I will try to be confessional with you. Here's the way Caleb Borchers was trained to do this and the way that I often do this. I just think about it so I can kick the can down the road. I go, oh, it is important that I make an intelligent, rational decision on this. And so immediately in my brain, I start to diffuse the situation. Well, I know that they're talking about that issue, and I could say this, but I don't want to be a bad witness. And so then I could say this, but then blah, blah, blah. And so I give a half answer and go, I'll get back to you later. And then I leave the conversation as quick as possible. And I have taken no opportunity there whatsoever because I want to think a good answer for it. The same way with um, the fundraiser. Well, I need to make sure that I do my research on Morningstar or whatever that place is, certif certified whatever, to make sure that you're a well-regulated uh, organization and that you're using the money in an appropriate way. I'll get back to you later. And I kick the can down the road and I think my way out of it. Or I just ignore the person sharing their emotion, sharing their story. Or... I come up with a lot of good reasons in my brain why this thing they've confronted me with isn't really that big of a problem. Yeah, well, listen, I, I understand. I hear what you're saying. I'll work on that. And then the whole time in my brain, I'm like, well, if they understood my life and they understood this and they understood that, and blah, 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 blah. Caleb, the ration machine, will manage to ignore and avoid that situation. And what I want to ask today, at least of myself, and I'm hoping maybe for one or two of you, is are we doing the exact same thing the Pharisees do as Jesus enters Jerusalem? That in moments where God is trying to speak to what's going on in our life, we find little nitpicky stupid stuff that we're going to debate and argue about instead of listening to the work of God. Might there be moments where someone is looking for basic human compassion 
And I go, well, I need to think about the situation to do the righteous thing. And Jesus goes, there's rocks in this room that would handle this better than you're handling this. That microwave or those concrete steps are more capable of understanding how to be a decent human being in this moment than you are. Because I am always thinking my way out of compassion and thinking my way out of vulnerability and thinking my way out of a million different things. Because in those moments I get scared and so I just run instead of actually engaging what God is trying to do. And so um, my encouragement for us today is like, what kind of people are you going to be? As you live your everyday life, are you going to be the kind of guy who runs for the palm branches or runs for the excuses and the arguments? When you have moments where God is giving you an opportunity to be engaged in the life of the people around you, will you see his work Or will you just see all this minefield of why you should or shouldn't be engaged? Because I think we have been trained to be so worried about being holy that we can't see the holiness of God in our everyday life. We're so worried about having the right ideas that we're completely wrong-minded. And what I see in this story is the Pharisees and the leaders so caught up and their doctrine, and their rule-keeping, and all the other stuff that we do, their theology, all this stuff, that when God is alive and active in front of them, they go, well, I don't know. I need to examine this a little bit further. And there are times God is literally knocking down the door of your life, and you rationalize away how, no, that's not God. I don't need that. That, uh, No, I'll, I'll deal with that later. That's a problem I'll think about tomorrow. That's a next step that I'll take next year. I'll add that to my New Year resolution for 2020. Whatever it is, I'm going to put off till tomorrow dealing with what God's doing in front of me. But often those doors close. And those moments of conviction and those moments of opportunity and those moments of conversation don't open back up. And that person that said, hey, I want to talk to you about this, that you go, oh, let me look at that and I'll get back to you, will never come back to you to talk to you about it again. God gave you the moment and you floundered it away thinking and rationalizing your way out. I think what I I took away from this passage today is that we want to be people of anticipation. We want to be people who are ready for what God is going to do, that are looking uh, for God to be active in our world. The last thing I want to be is the kind of person that God is doing something in front of me, and I just don't see it, or I I fuss about it. And God looks at me and says, Caleb, Be negative all you want, but the concrete around you is seeing what's going on in the world. Caleb, if you would release your skepticism for just a minute, I'd be able to heal your wounds and your insufficiencies. I didn't even spend as much time on that second half. Jesus, weepy, your life could be so much better if you'd just pay attention to what I'm trying to do. But instead, you ignore your way into misery. And so I want to encourage us to be ready. People that are in the starting blocks, people that wake up going, God's going to move today. God will do something today. God will be active in my life today. And I just got to be ready for it. I've just got to be ready for that moment and say yes to it and engage it. Even as we read that passage, there was this last verse just really struck out to me. Jesus talks about Jerusalem. He says, the problem is, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I think many of us will look back at our lives and God will go, hey, do you remember this? 
Yeah, that was me coming to you. Do you remember this? Yep, that was me coming to you. Do you remember this? Yep, that was me coming to you. And we go, oh, I just felt so alone all the time. God goes, well, I don't know what else to do. (laughs) There are so many times that God is asking us to open a door and to hear his voice. And we're just too busy poking holes at it or being stubborn to hear his work in our world. Uh, May Palm Sunday be a reminder to us to always be people who are ready to grab those branches and to praise the time of God's coming. I should have mentioned this earlier. You have Q&A cards in front of you or on your pews. Uh, we do a Q&A at the end of our sermons. We're always trying, we're still trying to figure out all the logistics of this. If you have a question that you'd like to ask, please go ahead and write it on those cards. Uh, there's also a place for prayer requests. Um, I, we're just going to have a few quiet moments. Tori's going to play a little bit on piano just to have some noise. But uh, go ahead and write your questions, and I'll be in the middle. I'll collect up those cards, either questions or prayers. Then we will do the Q&A, and then we'll sing one more verse, and then we'll close. Okay? So if you have questions or prayer, All right, we have one question here, and um, it's an interesting question that often comes up, um, particularly in a Catholic culture like we live in. Uh, So the question basically is about um, bodies and resurrection and uh, kind of the teaching of receiving a new body versus uh, the body that you had being raised from the dead. Uh, And particularly along those lines, the Bible talks about Jesus coming and all the dead dead will raise. Um, But then if we have, you know, family members who are cremated, can they rise? Can they come to heaven? How does that work? What is the relationship of those things? Um, So here's something that really helped me on this question. Um, when you die, assuming that you've lived any period of time in your life, exactly zero of the cells that you will die with are the same cells that you were born with. Does that make sense? I know this is going into biology here, but um, we all know that we like shed skin and that our body replicates and replaces cells and that our, you know, obviously we grow and all those things. And so the natural part of our bodies is that as you grow, some of your cells divide and grow, and other cells die away. And so particularly somebody who lives 80 years, they will not die with any of the same biological material as they were when they were born as a baby. Now, they're still that person, right? Even though their matter has somehow been switched out through the beauty of cell division, um, they're still the same person, even though it's not all the same And so um, it is my belief the Bible teaches that we'll be raised from the dead and that when we're raised from the dead, we will be given a new body in as much as it's a body that's of a different type. It's like Jesus' body. Jesus can walk through walls and he does a lot of weird stuff after he's raised. And so there's this idea that our body will not be sort of biologically, chemically the same as it was before, but there will be continuity. So Jesus' body still had scars from his life. Uh, so it's my belief, my belief that when the resurrection happens, we will have a physical body. And how God constitutes that, if it's exactly the same molecules that was there before, or if he manages to sort of reassemble those bodies in some magnificent, amazing way, um, I don't worry about it too much because um, God's able to do anything. The reality of even uh, the Jewish understanding of burial is uh, in Jesus' day, you would leave the body out, the body would decay, and then you'd take all the bones and gather them together and put them in a box. 
So, um, and that was really a common way to do it. You'd have family tombs. It sounds weird to us, but they'd have like sh big stone shoe boxes, right? So you'd lay out the body, the body would decompose, and then you'd gather the bones together, put them in a box with that person's name, and then everybody would have a little cubby, and your whole family would be in cubbies together. That may sound terrible for some of you. I always find it kind of cute, you know, that everybody's got their own little spot in the cubbies. And um, so this is the burial of Jesus in Paul's day. So when Paul says that we will be raised and we will have bodies that were like Christ's bodies, but will still be us, he's aware that decomposition happens. I don't think cremation does something more or less than what would happen in that process. And there's this belief that God will do his creation work anew and that he'll somehow make us so that we're something that's different than what we were before, but something that's still us. Does that, have I done that at all remotely okay? Does that make sense? And so I think the biggest thing is when God is as powerful as God is, if he can create the planet out of nothing, putting my body back together at the resurrection is not a problem that's too big for him, regardless of what burial option I select. Um, so, you know, like, I, and I don't have super strong plans on this, but cremation is probably something that, you know, our family will do for me whenever I die. I mean, it's just it's compact. Yeah, I've never, um, I don't think it is. First of all, I'll put it this way. I know enough of the Bible to know there is not a passage about cremation in all of Scripture. Does that sound right, Bruce? So it's real hard to create a really terrible sin that God didn't bother to tell us about. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where I would go. Now, that being said, you know, particularly the Catholic Church, I believe, preaches against cremation for a variety of reasons. You just have to understand that the Catholic Church has layers of philosophical history to their theology, which makes their theology sometimes more consistent than Protestant theology, but also makes it more frustrating than, I don't know if that's fair at all. But that's just kind of my approach to it is they use certain philosophical systems that cause things like birth control and cremation to come up and that they can be a little stronger on than Protestants tend to be. From dust you were made into dust you will return suggests that the authors of Scripture were not expecting a perfectly involved, you know, otherwise mummies are the only people that have any shot, right? Because mummification is about the only burial process I'm aware of that perfectly preserves, you know.